Chapter Eleven of Beverly of Graustark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Beverly of Graustark by George Bar McCutcheon. Chapter Eleven, The Royal Coach of Graustark. The two weeks following Beverly Calhoun's advent into the royal household. Were filled with joy and wonder for her. Daily she sent glowing letters to her father, mother, and brothers in Washington, elaborating vastly upon the paradise into which she had fallen. To her highly emotional mind, the praises of Graustark had been but poorly sung. The huge old castle, relic of the feudal days, with its turrets and bastions and portcullises. Impressed her with a never-ending sense of wonder. Its great halls and stairways, its chapel, the throne room, and the armor closet, its underground passages and dungeons, all united to fill her imaginative soul with the richest, rarest joys of finance. Simple American girl that she was, unused to the rigorous etiquette of royalty, she found embarrassment in the first confusion of events. But she was not long in recovering her poise. Her apartments were near those of the Princess Yetive. In the private intercourse enjoyed by these women, all manner of restraint was abandoned by the visitor, and every vestige of royalty slipped from the princess. Count Halfont and his adorable wife, the Countess Yvonne, both of whom had grown old in the court, found the girl and her strange servant a source of wonder and delight. Some days after Beverly's arrival, there came to the castle Harry Anguish and his wife, the vivacious Dagmar. With them came the year-old cooing babe, who was to overthrow the heart and heads of every being in the household, from princess down. The tiny Dagmar became queen at once, and no one disputed her rule. Anguish, the painter, became Anguish, the strategist and soldier. He planned with Lorry and the Ministry, advancing some of the most hair-brained projects that ever encouraged discussion in a solemn conclave. The staid, cautious ministers looked upon him with wonder, but so plausible did he make his proposals appear that they were forced to consider them seriously. The old Count of Marlanx held him in great disdain and did not hesitate to expose his contempt. This did not disturb Anguish in the least. For he was as optimistic as the sunshine. His plan for the recapture of Gabriel was ridiculously improbable, but it was afterwards seen that had it been attempted, much distress and delay might actually have been avoided. Yetive and Beverly, with Dagmar and the baby, made merry while the men were in council. Their mornings were spent in the shady park surrounding the castle. Their afternoons in driving, riding, and walking. Oftentimes, the princess was barred from these simple pleasures by the exigencies of her position. She was obliged to grant audiences, observe certain customs of state, attend to the charities that came directly under her supervision, and confer with the nobles on affairs of weight and importance. Beverly delighted in the throne room and the underground passages. They signified more to her than all the rest. She was shown the room in which Lorry had foiled the Venise, who once tried to abduct Yetive. 
the dungeon where Gabriel spent his first days of confinement, the tower in which Lorry had been held a prisoner, and the monastery in the clouds were all places of unusual interest to her. Soon the people of the city began to recognize the fair American girl who was a guest in the castle, and a certain amount of homage was paid to her. When she rode or drove in the streets, with her attendant soldiers, the people bowed as deeply and as respectfully as they did to the princess herself, and Beverly was just as grand and gracious as if she had been born with a scepter in her hand. The soft moonlit nights charmed her with a sense of rapture never known before. With the castle brilliantly illuminated, the halls and drawing-rooms, filled with gay courtiers, the harpists at their posts, the military bands playing in the parade-grounds, the balconies and porches offering their most inviting allurements, it is no wonder that Beverly was entranced. War had no terrors for her. If she thought of it at all, it was with the fear that it might disturb the dream into which she had fallen. True, there was little or nothing to distress the most timid in these first days. The controversy between the principalities was at a standstill, although there was not an hour in which preparations for the worst were neglected. To Beverly Calhoun it meant little when sentiment was laid aside. To Yetive and her people this probable war with Dalsbergen meant everything. Dangloss, going back and forth between Edelweiss and the frontier north of Ganlook, where the best of the police and secret service watched with the sleepless eyes of the lynx, brought unsettling news to the ministry. Axvein soldiers were engaged in the annual maneuvers just across the border in their own territory. Usually, these were held in the plains near the capital, and there was a sinister significance in the fact that this year they were being carried on in the rough southern extremity of the principality, within a day's march of the Graustark line, fully two months earlier than usual. The doughty baron reported that foot, horse, and artillery were engaged in the drills, and that fully eight thousand men were massed in the south of Axfain. The fortifications of Ganluk, Labat, and other towns in northern Graustark were strengthened with almost the same care as those in the south, where conflict with Dawsbergen might first be expected. General Marlanx and his staff rested neither day nor night. The army of Graustark was ready. Underneath the castle's gay exterior there smoldered the fire of battle, the tremor of defiance. Late one afternoon Beverly Calhoun and Mrs. Anguish drove up in state to the tower, wherein sat Dangloss and his watchdogs. The scowl left his face as far as nature would permit, and he welcomed the ladies warmly. "'I came to ask about my friend, the goat-hunter,' said Beverly, her cheeks a trifle rosier than usual. "'He is far from an amiable person, your highness,' said the officer." When discussing Baldos, he never failed to address Beverly as Your Highness. The fever is gone, and he is able to walk without much pain. But he is as restless as a witch. Following instructions, I have not questioned him concerning his plans, but I fancy he is eager to return to the hills. What did he say when you gave him my message? asked Beverly. Which one, Your Highness? asked he. 
with tantalizing density. "'Why, the suggestion that he should come to Edelweiss for better treatment,' retorted Beverly severely. "'He said he was extremely grateful for your kind offices, but he did not deem it advisable to come to this city. He requested me to thank you in his behalf, and tell you that he will never forget what you have done for him.' "'And he refuses to come to Edelweiss?' irritably demanded Beverly. "'Yes, Your Highness. You see, he still regards himself with disfavor, being a fugitive. It is hardly fair to blame him for respecting the security of the hills.' "'I hope that I might induce him to give up his old life and engage in something perfectly honest, although, mind you, Baron Dangloss, I do not question his integrity in the least.' He should have a chance to prove himself worthy, that's all. This morning I petitioned Count Marlanx to give him a place in the castle guard. "'My dear Miss Calhoun, the princess has—' began the captain. "'Her Highness has sanctioned the request,' interrupted she. "'And the Count has promised to discover a vacancy,' said Dagmar, with a smile that the Baron understood perfectly well. "'This is the first time on record that old Marlanx has ever done anything to oblige a soul save himself. "'It is wonderful, Miss Calhoun. "'What spell do you Americans cast over rock and metal that they become as sand in your fingers?' "'said the Baron, admiration and wonder in his eyes. "'You dear old flatterer!' cried Beverly so warmly that he caught his breath. "'I believe that you can conquer even that stubborn fellow in Ganlook,' said he, fumbling with his glasses. "'He is the most obstinate being I know. "'And yet in ten minutes you could bring him to terms, I am sure. "'He could not resist you. "'He still thinks I am the princess?' "'He does, and swears by you. "'Then my mind is made up. "'I'll go to Ganlook and bring him back with me, willy-nilly.' He is too good a man to be lost in the hills. Good-bye, Baron Dangloss. Thank you ever and ever so much. Oh, yes, will you write an order delivering him over to me? The hospital people may be, er, disobliging, you know. It shall be in your highness's hands this evening. The next morning, with Colonel Quinnox and a small escort, Beverly Calhoun set off in one of the royal coaches for Ganlook, "'accompanied by faithful Aunt Fanny. "'She carried the order from Baron Dangloss "'and a letter from Yetive to the Countess Rallowitz, "'ensuring hospitality overnight in the northern town. "'Lorry and the royal households entered merrily into her project, "'and she went away with the godspeeds of all. "'The Iron Count himself rode beside her coach to the city gates, "'an unheard-of condescension.' "'Now, you'll be sure to find a nice place for him in the castle guard, won't you, Count Marlanx?' she said at the parting, her hopes as fresh as the daisy in the dew, her confidence supreme. The Count promised faithfully, even eagerly. Count Quinnox, trained as he was in the diplomacy of silence, could scarcely conceal his astonishment at the conquest of the hard old warrior.' Although the afternoon was well spent before Beverly reached Ganlook, she was resolved to visit the obdurate patient at once, relying upon her resourcefulness to secure his promise to start with her for Edelweiss on the following morning. The coach delivered her at the hospital door in grand style. 
When the visitor was ushered into the snug little room of the governor's office, her heart was throbbing and her composure was undergoing a most unusual strain. It annoyed her to discover that the approaching contact with an humble goat hunter was giving her such unmistakable symptoms of perturbation. From an upstairs window in the hospital, the convalescent but unhappy patient witnessed her approach and arrival. His sore, lonely heart gave a bound of joy, for the days had seemed long since her departure. He had had time to think during these days, too. Turning over in his mind all of the details in connection with their meeting and their subsequent intercourse, it began to dawn upon him that she might not be what she assumed to be. Doubts assailed him. Suspicions grew into amazing forms of certainty. There were times when he laughed sardonically at himself for being taken in by this strange but charming young woman. But through it all, his heart and mind were being drawn more and more fervently toward her. More than once he called himself a fool, and more than once he dreamed foolish dreams of her, princess or not. Of one thing he was sure, he had come to love the adventure, for the sake of what it promised, and there was no bitterness beneath his suspicions. Arrayed in clean linen and presentable clothes, pale from indoor confinement and fever, but once more the straight and strong cavalier of the hills, he hastened into her presence when the summons came for him to descend. He dropped to his knee and kissed her hand, determined to play the game, notwithstanding his doubts. As he arose, she glanced for a flitting second into his dark eyes, and her own long lashes drooped. "'Your Highness,' he said gratefully. "'How well and strong you look,' she said hurriedly. "'Some of the tan is gone, but you look as though you have never been ill. "'Are you quite recovered?' "'They say I am as good as new,' he smilingly answered. "'A trifle weak, and uncertain in my lower extremities, "'but a few days of exercise in the mountains will overcome all that. "'Is all well with you and Graustark? "'They will give me no news here, by whose order I do not know. "'Turnabout is fair play, sir.' It is a well-established fact that you will give them no news. Yes, all is well with me and mine. Were you beginning to think that I had deserted you? It has been two weeks, hasn't it? Ah, your highness, I realize that you have had much more important things to do than to think of poor Baldos. I am exceedingly grateful for this sign of interest in my welfare. Your visit is the brightest experience of my life. Be seated, she cried suddenly. "'You are too ill to stand. "'Were I dying, I should refuse to be seated while your highness stands,' said he simply. "'His shoulders seemed to square themselves involuntarily, "'and his left hand twitched as though accustomed to the habit of touching a sword-hilt. "'Beverly sat down instantly. "'With his usual easy grace, he took a chair nearby. "'They were alone in the antechamber.' "'Even though you were on your last legs,' she murmured, and then wondered how she could have uttered anything so inane. Somehow she was beginning to fear that he was not the ordinary person she had judged him to be. "'You are to be discharged from the hospital tomorrow,' she added hastily. "'Tomorrow?' he cried, his eyes lighting with joy. "'I may go, then?' "'I have decided to take you to Edelweiss with me,' she said, very much 
as if that were all there was to it. He stared at her for a full minute, as though doubting his ears. No, he said, at last, his jaw settling, his eyes glistening. It was a terrible setback for Beverly's confidence. Your Highness forgets that I have your promise of absolute freedom. But you are to be free, she protested. You have nothing to fear. It is not compulsory, you know. You don't have to go unless you really want to. But my heart is set on having you in. in the castle guard. His bitter, mocking laugh surprised her and wounded her, which he was quick to see, for his contrition was immediate. Pardon, your highness. I am a rude, ungrateful wretch, and I deserve punishment instead of reward. The proposal was so astounding that I forgot myself completely, he said. Whereupon, catching him in this contrite mood, she began a determined assault upon his resolution. For an hour she devoted her whole heart and soul to the task of overcoming his prejudices, fears, and objections, meeting his protestations firmly and logically, unconscious of the fact that her very enthusiasm was betraying her to him. The first signs of weakening inspired her afresh, and at last she was riding over him roughshod, a happy victor. She made promises that Yetive herself could not have made. She offered inducements that never could be carried out, although in her zeal she did not know it to be so. She painted such pictures of ease, comfort, and pleasure that he wondered why royalty did not exchange places with its servants. In the end, overcome by the spirit of adventure and a desire to be near her, he agreed to enter the service for six months, at the expiration of which time he was to be released from all obligations if he so desired. But my friends in the pass, your highness, he said in surrendering, what is to become of them? They are waiting for me out there in the wilderness. I am not base enough to desert them. Can't you get word to them? she asked eagerly. Let them come into the city, too. We will provide for the poor fellows, believe me. That, at least, is impossible, your highness, he said, shaking his head sadly. You will have to slay them before you can bring them within the city gates. My only hope is that Franz may be here tonight. He has permission to enter, and I am expecting him today or tomorrow. You can send word to them that you are sound and safe, and you can tell them that Graustark soldiers will be instructed to pay no attention to them whatever. They shall not be disturbed. He laughed outright at her enthusiasm. Many times during her eager conversation with Baldos, she had almost betrayed the fact that she was not the princess. Some of her expressions were distinctly unregal, and some of her slips were hopeless, as she viewed them in retrospect. What am I? Only the humble goat hunter? Hunted to death and eager for a short respite. Do with me as you like, your highness. You shall be my princess and sovereign for six months at least, he said, sighing. Perhaps it is for the best. You are the strangest man I've ever seen, she remarked, puzzled beyond expression. That night, Franz appeared at the hospital and was left alone with Baldos for an hour or more. What passed between them, no outsider knew, though there were tears in the eyes of both at the parting. But Franz did not start for the pass that night, as they had expected. Strange news had come to the ears of the faithful old follower 
and he hung about Ganlock until morning came, eager to catch the ear of his leader before it was too late. The coach was drawn up in front of the hospital at eight o'clock, Beverly triumphant in command. Bowders came down the steps slowly, carefully, favoring the newly healed ligaments in his legs. She smiled cheerily at him and swung his rakish hat low. There was no sign of the black patch. Suddenly he started and peered intently into the little knot of people near the coach. No one saw the bit of white paper that passed from Franz's palm into the possession of Baldo's. Then the coach was off for Edelweiss, the people of Ganlook enjoying the unusual spectacle of a mysterious and apparently undistinguished stranger sitting in luxurious ease beside a fair lady in the royal coach of Graustark. End of chapter 11 Recording by Katie Riley June 2009